Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we welcome back a very special guest, namely SEC Division of Examinations Senior Counsel Christopher Mulligan to review how the Division of Exams is approaching the SEC marketing rule one year after the compliance date, best practices the SEC has seen firms implement, and some of the challenges or issues examiners have seen firms dealing with as it relates to implementation of the marketing rule. Given Chris's proximity to the topic at hand and its importance on our industry, we've structured this show as another installment of our Lessons from the Frontline series so we can really focus on the content. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series focus on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry professionals and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. With the risk alert that was released earlier this summer and some of the more recent enforcement actions in the marketing and advertising space that are making headlines, we hope this podcast will arm you with some key questions and items to consider that you should be focused on as it relates to your firm's marketing and advertising and its impact on your firm's compliance program. With so much to cover on such an important topic, I know the best thing for me to do at this point is to get up and out of the way. And so with that, let's dive into the conversation with Chris. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am very excited to be joined by a friend of the podcast, Mr. Chris Mulligan, to come on today's show to really do a deep dive into the SEC marketing rule. And one year ago, around the same time, was the compliance date with the SEC marketing rule. And obviously, you know, after an advertising rule from the 1960s and a, a cash solicitation rule uh, from the 1970s, right? The the SEC marketing rule really was such a seminal uh, rulemaking in the space and obviously um, has done a lot to, I think, move, move forward the regulation in the area of marketing and advertising for investment advisors. And uh, Chris has done a fantastic job in the past of coming on the podcast to really talk about um, how uh, they went about in the construction of the rule and um, ultimately some of the things that firms should think about when they were looking to implement the rule. Well, now, one year later, uh, all firms <laughs> should have for sure uh, started to you know, update their policies and procedures and implement the rule. And so we're very excited to have Chris come back in to really talk about What's the current state of the SEC marketing rule? Um, and again, no, no kind of better person to come in here and share their insights and thoughts. And so, a little bit of background on Chris. Chris has held a, a number of senior positions in the Division of Examinations and the Division of Investment Management at the SEC. He currently serves as the Investment Advisor, Private Funds Senior Advisor in the Division of Exams. Uh, Chris leads the division's efforts to train exam staff and implement new investment advisor rules, including the marketing rule. Chris has drafted numerous investment advisor risk alerts, including the only two risk alerts on private fund advisors. He also helps develop all significant rulemakings impacting investment advisors, counsels examiners on legal issues and enforcement referrals, conducts exams, trains staff, and develops exam initiatives and priorities related to private fund advisors. Before joining the SEC, Chris was in private practice counseling private equity advisors and institutional investors with respect to fund formation and regulatory issues, and he earned his JD from Georgetown Law. 
Suffice to say, Mr. Chris Mulligan is a dynamo when it comes to the investment advisor in the examination space. We are thrilled to have him back on the show. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be back on, on the show. It's great to be called a friend of anything, but especially of this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you very much, sir. Uh, that That is greatly appreciated as well. You know, I think as we get started with the conversation today, you know, I, I think it, we, we talked a little bit about in, in the intro there, but, you know, it is interesting. It's been about 12 months, right? Just over 12 months since the SEC marketing rule uh, compliance date. And so I, I thought one, one thing that might be helpful kind of as we, uh, you know, kick off today's conversation is really maybe doing a, a quick review of, of how the division of exams is approaching the you know, SEC marketing rule one year after the, the compliance date with the various examinations and inspections that they're doing of investment advisors. Sure. Great, great question, Patrick. And, and of course, before I begin, uh, I'm required to give a standard disclaimer that on behalf of myself, the views expressed today are provided in my official capacity as a commission employee, but does not necessarily reflect the views of the commission, the other commissioners, or the other members of the staff. So that's a great question, and, and you know, the, the marketing rule is has represented a significant change to a core investment advisor review area. Right, this is not an obscure rule. Uh, the old advertising rule, the old cash solicitation rule, were were very prominent on examinations. They're very important. They 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 are the rules in terms of how you uh, communicate with potential clients, how you market your services. We know that this information is very important uh, to investors and to potential clients. So it's just it's just a very, very important rule. We also know that registrants are work have worked very, very hard uh, to to prepare for this rule, to update their policies and procedures. They've worked with their outside service providers. We know that because we talked to them, because we've seen it on examinations. Uh, you know, that there has just been a, a lot of great hard work done by the registrant community. And internally within the division of examinations, we've also uh, done a lot of work training our staff, preparing them uh, to, to review for compliance with this new rule. And one theme that we've tried to, that we always try to, to, to have in the division of exams is transparency. We want to be as transparent as we possibly can about our expectations, about our priorities, uh, about what we're going to be looking for, right? Because we don't want to cite deficiencies. We want, uh, we, we want to come in and see that the advisors have, have uh, dealt with the new rule, updated the policies and procedures, and complied with it. So we've taken a number of steps to try to be as transparent in terms of what we're looking for on examinations over the past year. And those include emailing all registered investment advisors in May 2022, telling them about the upcoming compliance date. In September 2022, we sent a follow-on email reminding investment advisors about the upcoming compliance date and reminded update the brochures that cite the old cash solicitation rule, which of course was also replaced by the new market rule. In September 2022, we published a risk alert to inform SEC registered investment advisors, including advisors to private funds, about our focus areas in the upcoming examinations with respect to the new marketing rule. We identified substantiation of material facts, which is one of the general uh, prohibitions in the in the market rule. Uh, compliance policies and procedures, which we talked a lot about on our last podcast, uh, books and records, and of course, performance advertising, uh, one of the more important uh, provisions in, in, the, in the new rule. Uh, in November of 2022, we sponsored a national compliance outreach program, and there was a panel that I was on that was focused on the new market rule, where we answered a lot of questions and, and described 
uh, how exams was going to prioritize and examine for compliance to be marketable. And then in February of 2023, we published our exam priorities. Uh, which which discussed uh, once again the, uh, the the marketing rule or the marketing rule was going to be a, a very significant uh, focus for uh, the division of examinations, and we said that we would look at adopted but we would look at policies and procedures and make sure they're reasonably designed to prevent violations by the advisor and their supervised persons of the marketing rule. We would also look at uh, once again we discussed substantiation requirements. You're probably going to hear that a lot, uh, but, but we would look at substantiation. Uh, and, and performance advertising during examinations. We then also published uh, a risk alert in June 2023, uh, where we talked about sort of new phase of our review process where we were going to be looking at advisors' compliance with the general prohibitions in general. Uh, we were also going to be uh, reviewing for compliance uh, with the new marketing rule with respect to testimonials and endorsements, third-party ratings, and accuracy of form ADB disclosures related to advisors' marketing practices. So in exams, what we have tried to do is train our staff and be as prepared as possible. We know registrants are doing that, right? So we want to work as hard as they are in terms of understanding the new rule and being able to, to analyze for compliance with it. But we also want to communicate as clearly as possible what we're looking for and what we're analyzing to help registrants who are trying their best to comply with the new rule to understand, you know, how what we're going to be looking for so they, they can spend the time to, to, to be prepared. That's really, really helpful. And, and I think, you know, I, I would just echo a little bit of what you said there in that I, I I know from the registrant perspective, from the firm perspective, from the compliance officers that that are, you know, listening to this podcast, all of that outreach that the staff has done over the last year and even leading up to the compliance date has been very well received and 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 appreciated. And I think that that's really helpful and, and good context to help kind of set the table about a couple of things that we'll talk about that are both from a best practices standpoint, you know, some of the, the things that, that we're seeing firms that are doing well, like substantiation of the different statements and, and different items that they might make in their marketing. And then maybe, you know, some other areas that that firms have found a little bit more challenging and that firms are continuing to, to kind of work through. So I guess maybe as we dive into some of the more specific issues, I, I think it might be helpful to maybe start with, you know, from a, a best practices standpoint from a successes standpoint, you know, what are some of the key areas where, you know, you've seen really successful, really uh, uh, well-developed compliance programs? Where, where are, uh, what are some of the key things that they're doing to continue to um, make sure that, that they're uh, doing things well as it relates to marketing and advertising? Great question. And, you know, in exams, we often focus on the negative because, it, frankly, it's somewhat easier to, to identify deficiencies and say this is what we saw. But I think it's important to, to recognize the, the, the good work that we're seeing. And, you know, I have to be careful. I'm not saying that all of these things are required or that this, this, is, this is mandated under the rules. But I think in the interest of transparency, it's helpful to describe some practices that we've seen that that, that appear to be working and, that here, and appear to be preventing deficiencies, at least for that particular advisor. Again, you have to tailor your policies and procedures. You have to tailor your processes to your particular firm. So I'm not saying this is a one-size-fits-all, but I think it is helpful to identify uh, that, that, that we're finding a lot of great work and, and, and we're seeing compliance, program, uh, compliance professionals working really hard uh, in this space. But I think to start, 
starting just at the most basic building block of this, you know, we wanted to understand, you know, are advisors advertising and how are they advertising? And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, most advisors are absolutely advertising. That's not surprising to current and prospective clients and investors. And they're advertising in a variety of ways, but, but not surprisingly, uh, and one of the reasons we needed an update, I think, to, to, the, to the rule, to the marketing rule, is that advisors are, of course, advertising through social media, websites, you know, electronic methods is how uh, advisors are advertising. I, I can't say that we didn't see any mailers or anything that was sent in the mail, but I, I, I don't think I recall seeing one of those on uh, during the exam. So, you know, uh, you know, private fund advisors obviously have their method through through PPMs and, and pitch decks. So we did see some of that. But for retail advisors, it really is, of course, the internet. Uh, websites, social media, and, and so that's that's how advisors are are advertising now. And and and, and of course, the hope is that this new rule, uh, you know, uh, it, it acknowledges that reality and has sort of set forth uh, a roadmap for compliance, taking into account that the way that advisors are operating now. So advisors advertise. And what we saw was that, that many have fully updated their policies and procedures and they've implemented them, right? So we saw that we saw the hard work. We saw advisors, you know, that have fully updated policies and procedures and, and, and implemented them. In some cases, we saw advisors that had fully updated their, their, their policies, their policies, but those weren't necessarily followed through, uh, in terms of the related procedures. And then we saw some that had only partially updated their policies and procedures. Sometimes they still had references to like the old cash visitation rule, those sort of things, but they had, 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 had generally updated their, their, their policies and procedures. And then for those advisors that, that, that had sort of, you know, really done a good job of, of, of updating the policies and procedures and implementing them, here are some observations that we have. Again, not saying these are required, but these are but these but this is what we saw. So we saw, you know, really formal processes for substantiating statements of material fact, including advertisements, which when we talk about some of the deficiencies uh, we found, I'll be talking a lot about this. But we did see advisors uh, really take a lot of time and, and think about this process and make sure that they had a, a process for substantiating uh, statements of material fact. Uh, we also saw some advisors have uh, processes for reviewing uh, advertisements. Uh, again, not required by the rule, but we saw some of these practices, and, they, and, and, and in some cases, they seem to really work. And uh, they, sometimes they have pre-approval before dissemination. So someone in the compliance office generally, uh, either the CCO or other staff, were involved in the review and approval process of advertisements before they went out. We also saw training. We saw advisors take very seriously you know, the, the, the importance of this rule and need to train staff about the requirements of the marketing rule. So that, that, that was really good to see. And then we saw, um, you know, I think we, we really saw advice, some advisors, uh, many advisors commit to uh, books and records maintenance and have formal policies and procedures uh, designed to maintain books and records in accordance with the new marketing rule. So again, a lot of great work um, from compliance staff. Uh, we could tell the efforts they put in, uh, the time they put in, uh, you know, the coordination with their service providers. So, so some really good observations that we had uh, uh, during our sort of formal review process for that. Yeah. No, that's that's really great. And actually, you talked about a concept in your response there that, I, like, 
I think it's just so important uh, for firms that, again, we're, we are a year in, right? And, and again, the SEC gave an 18-month runway, right, of for folks to to make sure they were getting their policies and procedures up to date on this process. But you know, for you know, a lot of firms, I'll say even like prior to uh, the 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 new SEC marketing rule. A lot of firms may have had a, a process in place for reviewing marketing materials. Um, hopefully, firms were continuing to do, uh, you know, training and stuff like that. And 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 then you talked about the commitment to books and records. Obviously, su- you know, super important for firms to make sure. But the the other, the other thing that you mentioned there that I think is really important and, and might be a, a kind of you know an easy win for firms to be thinking about is that substantiation piece. Because, you know, when you're putting together marketing materials and you're thinking about these positive things that you want to say, either because of the professionals that you have at the firm or the investment strategies that you've had uh, designed that you think are continuing to act in the client's best interest, there are reasons why, obviously, you know, you, you have this firm in place and then there's this message that you want to communicate to investors. And as you're going back and you're thinking about, okay, well, that, that message that we want to communicate that that didn't just come from nowhere, right? It obviously must have come from somewhere. And so th- it's that it's just taking a little bit of time to see w- what that message looks like, to review that message, and make sure that any statement of fact that we make, right, that we can substantiate, that we can back it up, that we can make sure to say, yeah, like I, again, we didn't just pull this thing out from thin air, right? It comes from a reasonable or credible foundation, and and we think that's valuable for the investor. We think that's valuable for the prospective client. That's why we're including it in the messaging. But I, I really appreciate that thought about substantiation. And I think for a lot of firms, that's an area right now that they can do. Even even before, right? It would be a good good thing to do even before the division of exams comes in to look at to, to look at your firm. You you can do that right now and really be in a great position, you know, if and when the division comes knocking. Oh, those are great points. And I think having a process in place and really making the substantiation requirements seriously does a few things, right? One is it makes you disappointed in your advertisement. Right? It's easy just to say things, right? You can just say things. And, and you're not sure what, you know, where, where they come from. If you're thinking about creating an ad and you know that every statement of material fact and you have a process in place for substantiating every statement of material fact, that's going to fix a lot of the other problems in, in, in the market, right? Because you're not going to say things that are untrue, right? You're, not, you're probably not going to have misleading references, uh, inferences. You're going to have support for your track record. It, 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 it just it helps solidify and fix a lot of the other problems. The other thing is it's going to help you on your exam because that's very impressive, right? Is you can come in and when examiners ask you to substantiate, you know, a sample of statements of material fact, if you're sort of immediately have that information available, you know, that, that's going to be very impressive, and it's going to make it seem like your uh, compliant program really has its act together. So I, I think focusing on that provision, and it's not complicated. It's, it, it, it can perhaps be time-consuming right? And, and maybe not easy in some circumstances, but it's not complicated, right? You just need to have evidence to, 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 to substantiate every statement of material fact. And so uh, I think it's a great way to focus on uh, a great, a great, a great uh, piece of the market to focus on that will fix a lot of the, your other problems 
and will also be very impressive during examinations. Yeah, no, that's right. And and that is, you know, that, that touches on such an important part when it comes to, you know, working and collaborating with the Division of Examinations, which is that, again, oftentimes uh, firms are truly trying to do the right thing. And they're good people that are trying to uh, obviously provide an incredibly valuable service for a lot of people that are, uh, uh, you know, in the financial markets. And oftentimes, part of what is so important during the examination process is really being able to uh, highlight that or show or demonstrate to the staff all of the things that you're doing, right? And this is, again, like you said, like it's a pretty straightforward way. It's may maybe a little bit time consuming. It's not always going to be a super easy, but a very straightforward way to show that you have a really, you know, rock solid compliance program. And like you said, it, you get the tangential benefits of by doing that substantiation. It's also going to help probably benefit you in other areas of your marketing. So that's great. We, we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the things that, that you've seen that uh, successful firms have have uh, built into their compliance programs and, and are continuing to do to help kind of operationalize the, the new SEC marketing rule o- over the last year. Where, you know, where are maybe some things that you've seen some some challenges or issues that you've seen firms trying to deal with and tackle as it relates to the as it relates to the marketing rule? So I'll start with policies and procedures. And, and obviously, the, I discussed earlier the problem of, of sometimes not implementing them. But there's, we've also seen examples of policies that just weren't tailored, and this is where off the shelf can be very dangerous, right? And so, you know, policies and procedures that either reference, you know, activities that they that they don't do uh, and have no intention of doing, or uh, worse, they they don't address, you know, testimonials or endorsements, even if they're engaged in those activities, or you know, they they still have the policy and procedure is still talking about the old cash solicitation rule and haven't been replaced with the endorsement and testimonial section. So, you know, we're still seeing policies and procedures that, you know, while they have been updated, they haven't really they're just not tailored to to practice. And and, and that's sort of the opposite of of, of being impressive on the examination, right? Like substantiating uh statements of material fact quickly is a great way to to sort of dazzle uh, the exam staff, uh, but uh, on, on the flip side, uh, you know, off-the-shelf policies and procedures that talk about things that you don't do or that don't talk about things that you do do can 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 also you know not, that's not a great first step uh, on an examination to have to have that right. Uh, um, and, and then we also you know you know just not that's not implementing the the, the policies and procedures right. So it said they're going to do something you know they're going to they're going to have net fee performance in all performance advertisements, but then you see the advertisements and they don't have net fee. Sometimes it's really that straightforward. But 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 the point is you have the words you have the words in the compliance manual and somehow somehow those have to make their way into the real world and, and actually onto the pages of the public marketing uh, materials that you have. And so we just need to see that connection uh, between words on a page and a compliance manual and the actual advertisement. So I'm going to talk about you know some of the uh, more substantive uh, deficiencies. And again, I, I, you know we do a lot of examinations. Uh, again, we saw a lot of hard work, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to scare people with with this list. But again, this is a, we were trying to be transparent, and we want to tell advisors what we're seeing, so you can identify if you have any of these issues 
and, and, and fit them before uh, we come across them on examination. So I'm not saying, you know, the sky's falling and we saw lots of problems, uh, but but I do want to be very transparent and it's important to exams to tell people, you know, what, what we're seeing. And so, you know, we did see deficiencies across most aspects of the rule, including statements of material fact that the advisor was unable to substantiate upon demand, and in many cases were untrue or misleading. So the, the process would play out we would ask for substantiation for a statement. We, we, you know, sort of be silent for a few days, and they would come back and they say, you know, we tried to find, you know, that information, and and, and the reality is it's just not true. Like we, it just does not match the reality of, of our firm, and and so the substantiation process works in reverse, right? And it teases out a lot of these things of material fact that actually are not true. In some cases, the the, the process led to a situation where the advisor, you know, would, 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 would go back, look for information to support the statement of material fact, not be able to find anything, but still, you know, still believe that it's true. And it's often something dated, uh, you know, an award or something that was given years ago, the person who received it or knew about it is no longer at the firm. And so, you know, they believe it was true. Uh, but again, that's that's the point of this requirement is is, is is that you have to be able to substantiate these statements of material fact. And if you can't, you can't use that information, even if you still think it's true. So we sort of saw a variety. And, and, and here's some just examples. So, you know, we saw um, false statements by the advisor declaring that it is free, quote, free of conflicts, right? And, and often that was, that, was, that was directly contradicted by uh, the form AD or other information. I mean, it's, it's very unlikely that any advisor, frankly, is free of conflicts. I'm not sure it's even possible. Uh, but, but but going to the substantiation process, that was one I think universally led to the conclusion that that statement was untrue. Um, untrue statement, materially untrue statements of staff employed by the advisor. So I mean, I, I'm not suggesting if you're off by one or two employees because you know that changes, but really just mischaracterizing the size of the advisor uh, in a materially untrue way. And, 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 you know, and again, that's information that, that our examiners can sort of, since it's probably not true, just, just, just looking at a form ABV and understanding the advisor and then seeing some of the, the marketing materials, again, you go through that process and that's the point of the process. Can you substantiate that? And then the advisor will, you know, in those cases, we come back and say, you know, that's just, that's a true statement. On Tuesday, there's a staff qualifications to certain degrees or award they had. And, and this was a mix, right? Some of this was, was uh, untrue. Other times, they just didn't have the substantiation. Claimed it was true, but, but had no ability. No untrue statements about services or products offered. And I think this is, a, this is a dangerous example of leaving stuff in ads and never redoing it. You know, maybe at some point they engaged, they offered some product or service, or even sometimes they intended to offer it. And they, it made its way into marketing material. I mean, stuff isn't, you know, uh, anything, right? People don't go back and read the old stuff. And I think that's a real lesson. Read the old stuff. The old stuff is probably the most dangerous, right? And so, you know, you, 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 you know they, they're talking about services and products and types of clients they have. And, uh, and, and those actually aren't offered. And, you know, again, we'd ask for substantiation and, and they usually... After a couple of days, they come back and say, you know, we intended to do that, or we did it years ago, um, but we, but we, you know, we don't have any. Uh, you know, that's not that's not true today. Uh, untrue claims of receipt of certain awards, accolades. I kind of talked about this. This is sort of a mix. Sometimes it's not true. Other times, it's just a very old award. No one can, you know, no one has a memory of it, uh, or they not have a memory of it, but they don't have any physical evidence of it. 
Uh, so we saw that in times. Uh, misleading statements about the advisor's business or performance. Also, you know, putting celebrity faces on on things when the celebrity's not actually endorsed it. Um, so we saw that a few times. So that's that's a little confusing, and, and that, that's not necessarily that, that sort of substantiation. You know, we basically asked, you know, did this celebrity endorse your product, and, and the answer was no. And so uh, that, that that creates a, a misleading uh, impression, and also not be substantiated. And then you also saw uh, advisors use the SEC logo on websites. And, and sort of talk about how they um, have been approved, approved or endorsed by the SEC, which is, of course, never the case. That's probably a substantiation issue that is something in my life. Testimony of an endorsement. So this came in the latter part of our sort of review, and that, that, that continues. Uh, but but, but some, some early observations are we thought we observed that advisors are absolutely using testimonials and endorsements. Testimonials, of course, as you know, Patrick, were uh, prohibited under the old rule. We now are permitted, but with, with a number of restrictions. Endorsements replace basically the, the cash solicitation rule and, and, and then third party ratings uh, was subject to, to, to requirements under single action letters under the old advertising rule. And we did find that advisors are using uh, these, 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 uh, these forms of advertisement, testimonials, endorsements, and third party ratings. And we found that they have updated the policies and procedures, but we have found a number of deficiencies in the state including failure to comply with requirements for third-party ratings, including requirements associated with the advisor, the reasonable basis for the belief uh, related to the structure of any questionnaire or survey used in preparation of the rating, as well as clear following disclosure requirements. We also observed uh, failure to comply with all or certain of the requirements for endorsements and testimonials, including those related to maintaining a written agreement with endorsers, uh, providing the required the required clear and prominent disclosures and providing a description of material conflicts in terms of any compensation range. And finally, I'll talk about performance. Obviously, performance advertising, I think, has received probably the most attention uh, from, from the industry. It, it, it probably is the most, you know, it's the most technical of the new requirements and, and is, and is you know, a little bit different than, than the old advertising rule. So I think for, for all those reasons, it's received a, a lot of attention. It's also very important to investors and, 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 and clients. And so uh, we, observed, we observed, first of all, that many advisors advertise performance, not surprisingly. Uh, we observed that, that many advisors advertise hypothetical performance, predecessor performance, extractive performance. And, and we observed that, that many of them updated their policy and procedure. Again, getting back to the fact that there has been a lot of good work across the board with, with compliance staff and, and the market rule. But again, we identified a number of deficiencies related to performance advertising, including, among others, failure to comply with performance advertising disclosures and presentation requirements, including presenting gross performance information without including net performance, failing to include the required time periods, failing to include the performance results of the total portfolio when presenting extracted performance information, posting hypothetical performance information on a public website, which because of the requirements around hypothetical performance, having to control the dissemination of hypothetical performance uh, and having to know what your audience is, you cannot post it on a public website. And that's been also subject to a number of enforcement options. And, by, and finally, failing to include the required disclosures related to hypothetical presentations. So again, I don't want to be scary, uh, but we have seen deficiencies across uh, uh, most of the elements of uh, the new marketing rule, we've also seen great work. So I, I, I hope that this is balanced and, and that uh, you know, this is motivation to, to, to make sure you don't have any of these issues, but, oh, but also for those advisors that are, that, you know, have, have done a great job to, to, to keep it up.
Yeah, that that is a uh, a fantastic listen. I I don't think it's scary, you know, at all. I, I think you actually did a, a wonderful job of providing a really good summary of a lot of the key issues that, again, firms should continue to make sure that they're looking at a, a couple that I'd love to dig into a little bit more uh, because I uh, really appreciated your comments on it. You know, on the untrue statements of services and product offerings. I mean, one of the things that is just so important there and. You know, look, the listeners of this podcast, right? This is a friendly audience, right? <laughs> so they're going to be, they're going to be very receptive to what we're talking about. But, you know, look, we've talked about a, a healthy tension in the past between compliance and marketing, right? And like one of the things that, you know, folks that are in the marketing space frequently that they want to do is they want speed, right? They want like, they want to turn over stuff quickly, right? And, and so, you know, people will put together templates, right? Or like have a stable of pre approved materials and stuff like that. And that's great. Like, that's a good thing that you can have pre-approved materials. But the one thing you got to be conscious of, and one of the things you talked about is don't just let it sit there and, and you know, uh, get stale and grow moss on it over time, right? Like, like you got to go back and look at that because sometimes some of the services that are provided in that pre-approved template or those other types of offerings, those persons may no longer be at the firm, right? Maybe they left a year after that, or maybe they left five years ago. But, but again, you, you get some of these different statements that th there probably was a time when that was completely fine, right? And, and given the personnel that were at the firm then or given the types of products and offerings that it had that the firm was in great shape. But if you're, you, you got to make sure to continually review that marketing. And I know, you know, a, a consistent mantra we get from folks is, well, look, once it's been approved, like it's good, right? Like I don't need to go back and ever look at it again. And, and, you know, for those compliance officers that may hear that drum beat a lot inside of your firm, I think this is a really smart thing that, that you can communicate, you know, uh, you know, upwards and with and collaborate with your marketing folks to say, yes, of course we can have templates, uh, but we need to, you know, make sure that we're consistently reviewing those from time to time to make sure that there's nothing in there that, that was accurate at one point, but may no longer be accurate now. You know, another thing that you mentioned in, in certainly again, something for folks to make sure that uh, they're doing is on the testimonials and endorsements front, right? You know, uh, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. And I think, you know, a smart thing for firms to figure out is, if we're going to go down the path of using testimonials and endorsements, we need to be prepared to do these certain things, right? We need to have a reasonable belief of where you're getting stuff in from clients and there's a questionnaire involved or other stuff like that. You need to have a reasonable belief, right? That they've had uh, uh, the right opportunity uh, to provide that feedback in a way that is compliant with the rule. You need to make sure that from a disclosure requirement standpoint, right? Make sure that they're clear and prominent, right? Compensation or not compensation, client or non-client and any other material conflicts of interest. And just make sure that you get that you get that out there and you know ultimately the flexibility that the new marketing rule provides that allows firms to do testimonials and endorsements is great but you know with that additional flexibility and opportunity you need to make sure that you've got the right the right controls in place so you know definitely appreciate those those comments. Also, I'm, I'm, that is funny about the uh, false celebrity endorsements. I wonder if there's like some, you know, if I'm that celebrity, maybe there's some NIL claims in there, right? Or something like that they can, they can dig into. But, you know, so 
I guess maybe as we start to kind of uh, uh, wind down the, the conversation, and again, Chris, uh, I greatly appreciate all, all uh, you know all these insights. Where does the exam staff you know go from here? Or, or maybe a better way to phrase that question might be: Again, we're, we're twelve months in from the compliance date with the rule. How do you see exams continuing to evolve? You know, over the next twelve months as they continue to kind of dig in on the on the SEC marketing rule. Yeah, great question. So, so we are, you know, finishing up our initial wave of national initiatives and, you know, review to the, to the regular exam process that was discussed in our two results. I think going forward, a couple of things is we are going to look for opportunities to, again, provide transparency on what we're seeing, uh, whether that's through a potential risk alert or or uh, a podcast like this or other speaking events, we want to tell people what we're seeing as, 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 as much as we can in as much detail as we can. So we're going to continue to look for opportunities to do that. I, I think what is unique, let me also unique, but is very um, specific to the marketing rule is that focus on, its compli- on the compliance will continue you know, for a very long time. This is not you know, a certain type of filing, right? You think about some of the other recent rules, right? A lot of them have been, have been certain types of filings or certain types of reporting on Form ADV. And not to say that those aren't important, they are important, but, you know, there may be like an initial push to make sure that people are doing it, the restaurants understand it. And, and then after the sort of initial focus, it may fade. The marketing rule will likely never fade. It is just such an important rule uh, because it's about your relationship with your with your investors. It's how you communicate with potential investors and potential clients, how you bring them on as clients. And it, 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 the old advertising rule was such a big part of our examination program. The old tax solicitation rule was such a big part of our examination program. That it's you know I think I think once we're through the sort of initial review period for the new marketing rule, and we have uh, found as many avenues as possible to sort of you know, uh, provide transparency about what we're finding. The reality is the work will continue and advertisement, the types of advertisers will continue to evolve, right? I mean, there's a new social media site, you know, I mean, that would mean I probably still use like Facebook and stuff that are like kids have never heard of, right? And so, uh, you know, know, there's, there's, there's new social media, there's new ways of communicating every day. And that means the type of marketing that is used will continue to evolve. And the hope is that this rule can evolve with it and, and can be flexible to meet any of those platforms. Uh, and, and so, it, 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 you know, it, I think it will just continue. And as we find new issues, we will, again, try to be as transparent as possible with respect to that. So the future is, uh, is, is, is all marketing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's great, uh, uh, uh feedback and, uh, uh, thank you for, for, for that, I, I agree with you. I think one of the really nice parts that you can tell, and look, we talked about this when you came when you came on the show last year to to dive into the details of the marketing rule. And I think you know your your comments there continue to reflect that that the SEC was very purposeful in trying to make the rule as evergreen as possible, right? As as new technologies come out and and new 
uh, as the industry continues to innovate and find new and different ways to connect with its clients, to connect with investors, uh, having a rule in place that is a lot more principles based right and and uh, provides flexibility underneath those principles so that firms can tailor right policies and procedures that, that can help accommodate the the new uh, the different types of operations that they have with their marketing but but that is so important and i think you know again it's something good for all of the listeners of this podcast who are working inside their firms or uh, uh, kind of involved in the space to continue to be mindful of the fact that you know this is going to be it's going to you know continue to be a focus area uh, you know of the staff and something that again uh, successful firms will be uh, very thoughtful and considerate about making sure that they're following these best practices uh, so that they can have the the best compliance program possible and make sure that they're marketing and advertising stays within uh, the the four corners of the rule. So uh, that's that's great feedback. Well, Chris, I, I really, really appreciate your time today. And, and again, uh, uh, incredibly valuable insights into uh, what's happening with the division of exams and how they're looking at the, the SEC marketing rule. We'll, we'll, I've got one more question for you, but it's uh, a lot less technical and a lot, a lot more fun. You know, we're coming up here on, on the holiday season, you know, we, we, so as we approach the, the holidays uh, here over the next couple months, what's one thing that you're looking to do here over over the holiday season? Great question. I think my favorite event is is, uh, is coming to the Nutcracker at the Washington Valley with, with, with our family. We've done that for five, five or six years and we started off when our kids were really little and were you know crying during the whole thing and now you know they're 10, 9, and 4 and they're really looking forward to appreciate it. So just sort of seeing their reaction to, to the Nutcracker every year, how it changes as they grow up is, 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 is really uh, exciting for me. That, that is awesome. And also it gives me hope because my, my children right now are at, you know, six, two and one. And so we're very much still in the crying <laughs> stage anytime we go out in the public. So that's good. That's good for me to hear that, that there's hope uh, down the road for me that they can. That's great. Well, thank you again so much, Chris. Really. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and appreciate uh, you, you coming on the podcast and um, have a wonderful a wonderful holiday season uh, to, to you and your family and lo look forward to having you back on the show here at some point down the road. Great. Thanks, Patrick. You too. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Christopher Mulligan, for coming on the show today to share his fantastic insights on how the Division of Exams is approaching the SEC marketing rule one year after the compliance date, and some of the best practices and challenges examiners have seen on the front lines of our industry. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 